It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. Take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of James this morning. For the last two months, we've been in a series that we have entitled uh, Real Faith, Real Life, from that book of James that was written by Jesus' younger half-brother who came to faith and trust in Jesus um, years after his uh, early childhood and, and early time as a boy playing and engaging in real life with the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And he writes one of the first letters that we know of in the New Testament. And it's a letter written to a group of people that are scattered as a result of persecution, trials and tribulations in their life. And he's writing this letter in the first century to a group of believers who need some encouragement. They need some direction. And just like in the first century, we too need to understand what it means not only to be followers of Jesus Christ, but how we are called to live in light of the change that God has made in us. And, and we've come uh, quite a ways already in one a full chapter. We find ourselves in the middle of chapter 2. Uh, but up to this point, we've learned what I would say are five important truths uh, and characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We've learned that real faith means we trust and rely on Jesus Christ to get us through the trials and tribulations that we face. We also learned in chapter 1 that real faith trusts and and relies on Jesus to be the only one who can deliver us uh, from the passions and temptations and desires that we have and so many times are tempted to go that way instead of the ways of God. We've also learned that faith is, is what allows us to trust in the good gifts that God gives. Real faith moves us uh, to be people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And we've learned that real faith transforms us and it reminds us of what Jesus did and how he treated people of all statuses and all backgrounds and all ethnicities without partiality and favoritism. You see, what James has been teaching over and over and over again is that real faith is a transforming faith. Real faith is a a faith that has been changed by the power of Christ within them and, of course, within us that leads us to do something different, to live differently than we did before. Now, James is going to continue in chapter 2, in fact, all the way through this entire letter on this theme of faith. And he's going to establish this morning what the essence of real faith is all about. So let's turn in our Bibles and let's look to our text this morning. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And as we read this passage in this text this morning, we need to ask God a question. We come to God with a question, what does real faith, what is the essence of real faith look like? We know and recognize if we've been around the scriptures for a while that faith is a pretty important thing. And so we've got to ask the question as Christ followers, uh, is what I have, is what I hope for, is what I trust in real and true? Will it not only get me through the trials and tribulations and the realities of my present life, And will it be what God requires in the life that is to come? And James wants to address that with us this morning. And he's going to articulate very clearly this morning that as we open our eyes to what biblical faith looks like and what it involves and and the characteristics surrounding it, we're going to be able to recognize whether we have that faith or not. 
And if we don't have that faith, we're going to pray that God would open our hearts and open our minds and, and convict our spirits that what we've been relying on, what we've been trusting in, is in ourselves and not the Savior who freely gives his free grace to each and every one of us. There's a lot of ground for us to cover this morning, so let's jump right into it. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, on the screen is the Pew Bible number. You can grab that Pew Bible in the Pew Rack in front of you, and you'll find our passage, and we'll be there for the majority of the time, page 1,012, page 1,012. Here's what James has to say to us. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and is lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac, on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot to wrestle with in this passage this morning. Uh, We come and we have a lot of questions. Lord, at the heart of it, we want to know, we want to be able to rely on true biblical faith. And this passage helps us to understand the balancing between faith and works. Lord, this passage helps us to determine the place that uh, your law that gives liberty plays within our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to open our hearts and open our minds, especially this morning, to wrestle with these things, to understand these things, Lord, so that we might do what your good and pleasing will is, that we might know uh, what we have in you, and as a result, Lord, that we might live uh, out of that um, grace and goodness in our lives. Lord, I pray that you will uh, use me uh, in a way that will uh, move me to the background and that you might become front and center, that you're the one we hear this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Well, when I was in elementary school, one of my favorite days of the year uh, was something that would happen maybe uh, quarterly, and the teacher would tell us on Friday we are going to have show and tell. 
You remember those days. You remember the opportunity you had to bring something that was near and dear from your home uh, to present to your class, not only to tell them about something you have, but to bring it in and show them uh, what it was all about. I remember on a little exploring journey that I had as a young boy, I had found the skeletal remains of an animal. I don't know what kind of animal it was. I had just found the head of the animal, and, and, and it had been something of decent size. I remember taking it home, and, and of course, because mom said, clean it up. And uh, I remember thinking, I, I want to show everybody this skull that I had found. And when the teacher said it was show and tell time, I remember that was the first thing that came to mind. I am going to show them what I thought was maybe the skull of some sort of dinosaur. Probably a raccoon or a possum. I remember standing up with great pride, speaking of how I had to wrestle this animal down. And uh, all the other lies that we little kids tell uh, to make ourselves sound so much more interesting than we are. You see, show and tell was an awesome time. It gave people a picture of what was near and dear to you. It gave you the opportunity not only to share about something, but to show in, in, in real life and, and in tangible ways that which was important to you. But that's not always how show and tell works. You know, uh, teachers uh, at times are shocked and perplexed that when they talk about what you can bring in, it seems to lose its force or, or emphasis. You see, uh, not too long ago I was looking as I was preparing for this, uh, a list of uh, the most incredible items that have been brought in to show and tell. And it listed five of the most amusing, or maybe it wasn't that amusing when the items were brought in, but after, uh, after the fact, they surely are amusing. The first one was a hand grenade. Yes, a loaded hand grenade. How would you have liked that? Hey, everybody, I found this. Pin still in it, shaking it around. A hand grenade. That, that's quite the object for show and tell. A fifth grade girl brought in a painting that she thought was just mesmerizing. She had found it in her parents' attic, and she brought it. And little did she know that while she thought a little girl had painted this painting, that what she had in her possession was a priceless Monet painting. Mom and Dad didn't even know they had it. And yet she brought it in, and, and it took the art teacher, uh, the one that would be able to find it and, and uh, declare what it was. Another individual, this has happened numerous times, kids have come in, and as they stand before the class, they stand with a loaded gun before them. Of course, again, the danger of something like that, no doubt, shocked the teacher and all those in the classroom. I like this one. Show and tell is to bring your favorite pet into, into the school. And one child brought in a poisonous rattlesnake into the classroom. I'm sure that got a rise out of the class. And then finally, the one that I like the best is a child wanted to bring in uh, their favorite dog. The problem was the dog had rabies. And so here you can find out that uh, show and tell can turn into quite the event, far greater than the skull that I brought in uh, so many years ago. But why is show and tell so important? Why is show and tell so effective? Because it allows kids to share something that's important to them on the inside, and not only to speak about it, but to bring in three dimensions this item that is so near and dear to them. James has been telling us over and over again 
that faith is something that we not only tell people about, but that we show. It's that double dimension, if you will, of how we illustrate our faith. Now, as people, we are really, really good at telling people things. Listen, the phrase is very clear. Talk is cheap. And as Christians, we can talk a great game about our walking and living with Christ as our Savior and Lord. But James is concerned about that because he recognizes, as we'll learn next week, that there's great power in the tongue. That the tongue can boast about things that really aren't true. That the, uh, the tongue can tell stories just as I did during my show and tell time about things that weren't really reality. And James is concerned that, that his followers and, and the people within his church that, that share that they love Jesus and, and follow Jesus may not be living up to that. And so he begins to share very clearly this morning one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. A passage of Scripture that has divided the church at times. A passage of Scripture that has been called a contradiction within the Bible. Uh, This passage is really important because it gets down to the very theological underpinnings of what faith is and the role that faith and works has in our lives. What James is going to tell us is if someone has faith, let them tell of it, but important as well is for them to show it. So this morning I want to look at this through three very important truths. You see, we are quick to talk about our faith, but James says we need to show it, and and that is in and of itself the very fabric of faith. This morning I want to look at three points. I want to look at the importance of faith. I want to look at some illustrations of faith. And then finally I want to look at the implementation of faith. And so that's my goal. That's where we're going to get to. And once we're done, I will release us uh, to our weeks. So first of all, the importance of faith. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not uh, have works? Can that faith save him. James asks a question. Now I'm not sure if the reason why James is asking this question is if this is a conversation that's going on. Now I've told you with each of the other ones that we've brought up, each of the other little dialogues that have taken place in the book of James, that these are real life situations. And I'm here to believe that while he doesn't give a name, He is articulating this is a real-life conversation. This was a debate. This was a struggle within that early church. And when James says, listen, someone has faith but does not have works, he's got a question that he wants answered. Does that faith save him? You see, we've got to recognize this morning that faith is one of the most important things that God shares or God reveals to mankind. We're going to learn that faith is an important commodity within the life of any believer. In fact, you cannot be a believer without the uh, element of faith. We are told in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if your goal and your desire is to please God, then you've got to exercise this gift that God gives that we call faith. 
Now, to understand this, we've got to look at this issue of faith in a couple different ways. First of all, we have to look at the importance of faith theologically or biblically. We've got to look at it theologically or biblically. We need to understand what does the Bible have to say? What does the Bible articulate about faith? Well, we've got to understand that James is talking about two things, faith and works. And we've got to understand where's the dividing line between those two things. And and if you get the dividing line wrong, then your understanding of your salvation will be mired in all kinds of confusion. And so James wants to make sure that you recognize the place that faith has in your salvation and the place that works has with regards to your salvation. And he wants us to make sure that we have that dividing line in the right spots. So right away, he wants us to start talking about this issue of faith. Let's look at the first of two important terms. Let's look at faith first. First, faith is trusting. It is trusting in Jesus as being sufficient for all we need as sinners. Faith is the belief that Jesus is the ultimate power source. Faith is the belief that Jesus has articulated that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And faith is believing, resting, and hoping, and relying on that to be true. And because that's true, faith is going to lead me to live differently as a result of the trust and the hope and the knowledge I have about Jesus. I don't do this very often, but I've brought up prop this morning. It's just a simple house lamp. And if you notice, this house lamp is dark. This house lamp isn't um, doing what the Creator invented it to do. You see, a light is given to dispel or to uh, displace darkness. It's to allow us to see when everything else is dim. But right now, this light is doing nothing. This light does not have itself connected to a power source. Like this lamp, you and I are dark. In our sin, we are not doing what God has called us to or how God has created us to live. And so we've got a problem. God has called us to live in relationship with Him. But we're disconnected. You see, notice that just like this lamp, God is the white cord that I've got in my right hand. Our lives are the cord that is in my left hand. The problem is we were once connected in the Garden of Eden. Adam was in a right and full relationship with God, but sin severed that. And so for the rest of of humanity's time here on earth, we have been entering into our lives dim and dark. The Bible says we're dead. But faith recognizes the gift that God gives that there's an alternative to this dead lifestyle. There's an alternative to being dark. There's an alternative to not living out your purpose in life. The Bible tells us that alternative is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the one who can bring light into darkness. Who can bring life into death. That alternative is, is that, listen, Jesus Christ came to give you salvation. Jesus Christ came to illuminate your heart and mind, to show you how dead you were in your sin. And by using faith, 
as the mechanism that you can have life in Jesus Christ. So this is where we are in our, de- in our sin and trespasses. And faith says, I know where the power source is. Now listen, I want to be very clear in this. You did not gain this understanding of the power source on your own. It is through the teaching and preaching of Jesus Christ. It is through the revelation of God's word. And Jesus came and said, I am the light of the world. And anybody who connects themselves with me will be a light as well. And so what faith does is faith takes our lives and says, I have to connect to the ultimate power source. Faith is the very thing that allows us for our lights to be turned on. You see, faith is the realization that without God, I've got nothing. Without God, I will never fulfill my purpose. Without God, my sins will never be taken care of. And so I'm going to stay plugged into Him because the second I unplug from God is the second my life will utterly fall apart. And I want you to recognize that this faith isn't a one and done thing. It isn't like you plug into God for a little while and then unplug. But that to remain lit, we have to continually, by faith, rely and trust and rest in the power and work of Jesus Christ. It's the mechanism that allows us not only to enter into a relationship with Jesus, but to continue in our relationship with Jesus. Now, why is Jesus the ultimate power source? And write this passage down, John 17.4, John 17.4. Jesus is praying to his Father in what is the longest recorded prayer that Jesus has. And Jesus in John 17, 4 says, I have completed the works, Father, that you sent me to do. You see, there were works that were required. There were works that were necessary. And none of us could accomplish those works on our own. And so Jesus came and he put on flesh and he made his dwelling among us and he lived a perfect life. And he did what you and I couldn't do. He did what Adam didn't do. And that is live in perfection according to the plans and purposes of God. Living according to all the regulations of the law so that he might fulfill the law in his death, burial, and resurrection. And as a result of that, what we are doing is saying, I can't work this salvation out on my own. I can't do enough, Jesus, to accomplish what I need to. I can't uh, justify myself and justify my actions. And so I am lost. I am broken. I am in need of a Savior. And faith awakens my heart, and it tells me through the teaching and preaching of God's Word that I am lost without Jesus. And I must now bow and and throw myself at the mercy of the court of God and say, Jesus, save me, for I am a sinner. Now, this faith isn't just the thing that saves us. That's a part of it. But faith does something more. Faith changes us on the inside. Faith moves us and compels us. and, and, And faith culminates in our loving of God and loving of others. And so when you are moved to compassion, faith is being lived out in your lives. When you are moved to do the things of, uh, of what Holy Scripture calls us to, it is faith that is making that a reality. 
You see, the Holy Spirit works in in correspondence with our faith and moves us and motivates us and equips us to do the very things that we wouldn't do on our own. And it's solely because of the work of Jesus Christ. It is because of what He has done for us. And it is faith that allows us to live in light of Him, to seek and honor and glorify Him, to obey Him. That is why when we talk about faith, it is trusting in Jesus Christ. That He has done all that He has said He has done, and He will do all that He says He's going to do. Now, that is faith. Faith trusts God, and faith obeys God. This leads to works. What are works? Works are the outpouring of that faith. What does a life that trusts, what does a life that relies solely on God do? How does it live in light of Him? How does it honor Him? How does it glorify Him? How does it obey Him? When James says, listen, works are an important part of the Christian life, what he is saying is not the Ten Commandments per se. What he isn't saying is you got to follow the Torah to the nth degree, nor is he talking of the litany of rules and regulations that the Pharisees had saddled the people of God with. In our day, listen, works are not your sacraments. Works are not your church attendance or some other regulation that we've made up as being something that makes you holy. At the heart of the term works, write this down, if faith is trusting and obeying God, works is seen in what we call the law of liberty earlier in the text, that works is a life of loving God and loving others. It is loving God and loving others. And so faith moves us to love God and love others because without faith it is impossible to please God. And you could put in there, without faith it is impossible to love God. You can't love God without faith. He's got to give us this gift of faith so that we might in turn love Him. But it then grows from a love of God to a love of one another. And we can't do that without faith. And yet, here's the question we have to ask this morning. Have I loved God to the fullest this week? Have I loved others perfectly this week? And I'm going to answer the question because I know it's true of me and I know it's probably true of you that last week we were reminded that we all fail in that, right? And we learned last week from the book of James that if we fail in one of these things, we are lawbreakers. We can't say, well, listen, I'm really, really good at this category of issues, but with regards to these sins, I I find myself falling. Once we fall to one sin, the Bible says we're guilty in many ways of all sin. And so we've got a problem. As lawbreakers, we've got a choice. Are we going to trust in ourselves? Are we going to try to go into that courtroom and try to explain and try to excuse our sin? Or are we going to throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ, the only one who can save us, the only one who can redeem us, the only one who can make us whole? Faith allows us to trust the things of God and obey and do what he says. Faith continually turns to Jesus so that we might learn to live and to love like Jesus does. Now some students of the Bible, some armchair theologians this morning, and I love them, 
are going to ask some questions. And maybe you're new to the scriptures and, and this little paragraph that I have is probably going to make you just go, what, what in the world is he talking about? So I'm going to just take a, a small little time out, if you will. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's all right. This will prove that I've done my studying. For those that know a little more about the Scriptures, know a little bit more about theology, you're going to be like, all right, because I was waiting for this. I want to know where Tim's at on this, okay? So we're going to have a little fun. The first thing we got to recognize is, is when we come to a passage like this, James seems to sound very different than the Apostle Paul. You see, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 and 4 talks about the relationship between faith and works. And it seems that Paul creates a line differently than James does. And if you're an armchair theologian, you know that the Bible should not and cannot contradict itself. And we've got a problem. Because it sure seems that Paul in Romans and James here in this letter are contradicting one another. Because James, or Paul says that man is justified by faith alone. And it's not about works. But James is saying in our text that, that while man is justified by faith, he also says in verse 21, was not our father Abraham justified by works? Wait a minute. So James says you're justified by works, and Paul says you're justified by faith. How, how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile what God has done? Well, let's look first of all. We need to recognize, write these down if you're an armchair theologian, and I love them because I am as well. Number one, we need to recognize James and Paul are friends. And one thing I've come to learn is you don't try to reconcile friends, right? James wrote this letter very early in the history of the church. Paul comes on the scene later. And Paul would have had every opportunity to correct what James had written and what James had shared with the church. And nowhere does Paul say, listen, in Romans, in the book of Romans that was written probably some 10 years after uh, James wrote this letter, hey, I need to correct something. While I love James, and while in Galatians 1.19, James is a dear friend to uh, Paul, Paul never says in his writing to Romans, listen, let's correct what James said. James missed it. In fact, he seemingly leaves James' statements alone. Number two, we need to recognize that Paul was speaking out of faith that gets you right with God, and James was speaking out of faith that since you are right with God, how does your faith impact others? So James is talking, in essence, uh, about a horizontal faith. What does your faith do in its life and in interaction with other people? And Paul is talking about a horizontal faith. How does your faith impact your relationship with God? One addressing the vertical, one addressing the horizontal. Number three, Paul spoke about a faith that was at the beginning of the Christian life, whereas James is speaking about a faith that is either in the middle of the Christian life or at the end of it. It's looking back and saying, how has this faith that I, that I took into my life, this trust of Jesus that I had at this point of my conversion, how has my faith been lived out since then? Whereas Paul is saying, let's get this one moment where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, where you go from being a sinner to a saint in the eyes of God. One is at the beginning, 
One is seemingly later on or at the end. Number four, Paul is speaking in the book of Romans about lost people, sinners, and how they are made righteous before God, how they are justified. James was speaking to a religious and saved group of people, my brothers, he says over and over again. Finally, James speaks about a work that works that complete faith, and Paul talks about works that compete against faith. And so hopefully that will help you a little bit to understand that, that what they're talking about is two sides of the same coin. There's no contradiction going on, but there's a clear distinction that what one is talking about is different than what the other one is talking about, that they're looking at faith from different vantage points. And we are all the more blessed because both of them have addressed this issue from each of those vantage points. But be careful that faith can't be just theological and it can't be theoretical. Notice that we must examine the word faith and the balance of faith and works practically. James says, what good is it? What use in another translation is it? The idea of usefulness here is, what good is faith here on earth if you're not using it to impact the lives of others. Now we must recognize that faith is something that is of great value to us. In fact, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians says that three things will remain. Faith, hope, and love. That's telling me that while there's a lot of other things that we can have as Christians, a lot of things that God gives to us as Christians, that faith, hope, and love are three of the greatest. And of course, the greatest of all of these is love. And so we need to recognize, what does faith do in my life? And faith is one of those things that if we're not careful, becomes something very esoteric. It becomes something that just kind of floats out there, kind of like our cloud of, of data storage. Nobody knows how to explain it. Nobody knows it just, it went to the cloud, right? I don't know where the cloud is. I don't know where all my pictures are. I don't know where all my sermons are, but they're in the cloud, Pastor Keith tells me. And I don't know what that means. Okay? And some of us are like, I have faith, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what that involves. I don't know what that looks like. It's just kind of this nebulous thing. But I want you to know faith has an outpouring. There's a practicality to it. James says you're going to use your faith, and your faith is going to be of great impact to you, an impact to those whom you serve. I came to understand this when my brother passed away in 1990. I watched what was esoteric, my parents' faith, put on shape and, and structure to it. Because it was their faith, their trust, their reliance on God that was going to get them through that great trial. It was that faith that was going to allow them to endure hardships. It was that faith that was going to allow them to consider it pure joy, my brothers, when trials of many kinds come. I experienced that faith in a real practical way when my body and my heart desire things that run contrary to the will and word of God. 
And when I find victory over sin and over temptation, it is not me. I can't high-five myself and say, hey, great job, Tim. Way to show self-discipline. But I have to recognize it is my faith in God, this gift that God has given me, that allows me and empowers me to do the things that even myself wouldn't be able to do or to handle. And not only does it do that, but as I exhibit, as I live out faith, faith is going to produce in me a love for God and a love for others. And so as I love my wife as Christ loved the church, as I love my children as I'm called to by God in his scriptures, as I'm called to sacrifice self so I may serve people like you, God says, that's not because of you. You can't put the pin on your chest and award yourself father or husband or pastor of the year. That is my life being lived through you through the conduit and mechanism of faith. And so what good is it if I say I have this faith, this reliance and trust in God, and I never allow that faith to move me or change me or to allow it to serve others in any practical way? Faith has practical elements to it. And when we are living in accordance to the will of God, we will see those elements lived out each and every day. Thirdly, we see that it is, we need to look at it personally. Personally, okay? He goes on and he says that this faith, notice all the personal pronouns, you and I. Notice someone, particular, singular. You see, faith isn't, gained by osmosis faith isn't gained by association faith isn't a group issue faith is a personal issue this means we can't rely on our parents faith on our spouse's faith on our pastor's faith on our friends faith it is something that must be realized by us as individuals we must all come to a place where we bow the knee in faith And come to the grips with the genuineness of God's offer to be the power source we need in our lives. And we've got to come to that ourselves. Now, God may use other people. God may use your parents. He may use your spouse. He may use your pastor. He may use your friends. He may use their faith and how they're living out their faith to be able to be an exhibit of something. Recently, I was coaching a basketball practice for one of my sons, and one of my neighbors came to me, whose son plays on the basketball team, and he says, hey, after practice, can I talk to you, Tim? I said, sure. And he came, and he said, listen, my wife and I, you know, we're we're doing okay, things are going all right, but we feel like we're missing something. We feel like there's something more to life. And as we looked around to our friends and to our family, wondering, does someone else have it? Both my wife and I said, it seems like Tim and Amanda do. And then he went on, and it was humorous. He says, because it's, it's not the house you have, because our house is nicer. It's not the cars you have, because our cars are nicer. He went on, he said, and your kids, we both know, aren't perfect, so it's not that. And then he, I'm like, well, I don't know why you're talking to me, Okay. And then he said this, what we came to recognize is something that you have that we don't. You have Jesus in your life. That's an unbeliever. Now what caused that unbeliever to do that? 
The exhibit of faith in a child of God's life who is trusting and relying and depending and unbelievers are watching that and saying, wait a minute, I don't have that. Why is their light bulb on and mine isn't? Well, I know they don't have a power source of their own, so there's got to be something they've plugged into that has made that a reality. And yet my brother, my friend, my neighbor can't say, well, you know what, just say a quick prayer for me there, buddy. You know, connect me with you. You know, you can't daisy chain, if you will, faith into someone else's life because they're connected to God. You can't do it. It's got to be personally received. So that's why faith is so important. Without it, we can't please God. Without it, we can't live out the plans and purposes that God has for us. Without it, we will never experience what true abundant life is all about. We need faith. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that faith is a gift from God. And we got to receive that gift. Notice second, he talks about some illustrations of faith. Some illustrations. In verses 14 through 25, he gives three illustrations of the different types of faith. And by looking at each of them, we're going to recognize that three, the first three, are bad. And the final one, the fourth one, is good. So let's look at the first three that are bad. First of all, he distinguishes that one of the bad faiths is what he calls a dead faith. Notice verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay? So exhibit number A. Exhibit A. Exhibit number A. Exhibit A. Okay? The first counterfeit faith is a dead faith. Uh, Write this down. Dead faith is a faith full of lip service, but no lifestyle. How many of us have seen that? Whether in our families, or in our own lives, or in the lives of, of someone we know, who talks a great game about how much they love God, and how much they love to worship, and adore, and to serve Him. But there's nothing there to prove that. There's nothing there to validate that. There's nothing there that, that shows that the walk matches the talk. It has lip service, but no lifestyle. It's a faith that sounds really, really good, but has no fruit to it. James uses the illustration of a a brother within their midst, another Christian who is lacking in daily necessities. The idea here when it says that he, um, in the text says, uh, is poorly clothed, literally he's naked. Okay, so he walks into your assembly naked. The guy's got nothing, and he's emaciated because he hasn't eaten. All the proof in the world is this man needs help. This man needs someone to minister to him. And so our brother walks in naked, he walks in emaciated, and Pastor Tim says, you know, looks like Brother Bill here needs some help. Let's pray for him. Lord God in heaven, We know you're the giver of all good things. We know you've given us all good things. We know that we are to model our life after Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray for Brother Bill. We pray, Brother Bill, that Brother Bill will get a sandwich. 
Can I get an amen? We pray that Brother Bill will get a sweater to cover his emaciated body. Lord, show Brother Bill that it's not right to walk around naked. Lord, allow Brother Bill's needs to be taken care of. In God's name we pray. Amen. Brother Bill, are you encouraged? Brother Bill, I have taken care of your needs. I have brought them before the Lord. And he will minister to you. Now go and be clothed and be fed. That kind of faith. It's dead. Because that faith should move me with compassion to minister to him. Yes, prayer is important. But instead of praying about a sandwich, why don't you make him a sandwich? Instead of praying about a sweater, why not take and give him a sweater? So that he can be clothed. This guy needs help. He doesn't need help finding better food or better clothes. He's got nothing. And our response cannot simply be, we will pray for him. Dead faith is seen only in profession, not in practice. Now listen, I could tell you that I have a love for my wife, Amanda. And I could tell the world how much I love Amanda. I could go on Facebook and and do all the emojis I want. I love Amanda, I love Amanda, I love Amanda. But what good is that profession if I don't care for her and nurture her and minister to her? I don't spend time with her. And when I do spend time with her, I belittle her. I cut her down. I tell her she's worthless. What good is that kind of love? Oh, but haven't I said, haven't I spoken clearly of my love and affection? That love for Amanda is dead. But on the flip side of this dead faith is what I want to call, and I want to distinguish it from the dead faith, is what I call a deficient faith. So it's, it's a cousin, it's a kissing cousin, if you will, uh, of dead faith. But for your sake and mine, let's separate it and call it a deficient faith because it's the flip side of a dead faith. A dead faith talks a good game, but then doesn't live it. A deficient faith is one that is doing a lot and is relying on that a lot that is being done to prove and to validate themselves before God. And some of you come from this type of tradition. Some of you have been taught that you just have to believe the right things and, and uh, um, do the right things and therefore you will be saved. There are some of you maybe this morning, and I'm going to shock your world, that you think by your very presence here and your presence here each and every week that somehow this is building up for you credits in your spiritual accounts. Well, if I'm here at a service every week, surely God will look at that and say, well done, way to go. Many people enter into the waters of baptism believing that if I do this thing, I will be saved, that I'll pop in a little wafer into my mouth and a little juice, and that by the time that that uh, bread and, and juice hit the back of my throat, God has been transmitted this message, Tim has done a whole lot of good. Some of us serve, and we serve not with a heart of gratitude of what God has done for me, that I don't have to do anything to get God to be pleased with me. Instead, we're saying, if I do this, God will be pleased. 
And so you're constantly in this try hard, try hard, try hard, do, 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 instead of be, be, be. Rely, 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 rest, rest, rest. And as a result of that, some of us will stand before the throne of God and God will say, what? Why should I allow you into my heaven? And you will bring out the litany of things I've done. Well, I did this, God, and I did this, and I did that. And God will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Here's why. Because religion doesn't save. Because your church doesn't save. Because your good works don't save. Because tradition doesn't save. If you gain anything out of this message, gain this one truth. Only Jesus saves. Okay? You can't get around it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Upon the solid rock I stand, no other ground because it's all sinking sand. We got to rely. We got to trust in that. And anything else we do is going to be dead or deficient for the demands of God. Next, there's a demonic faith. A demonic faith. You're like, wait a minute. Faith? Demons? How, how does that work? Never thought about that. But I want you to know this morning, as James does, that there is a faith of demons. He goes on and he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so we have this demonic faith. Write these passages down. Mark chapter 1, verse 34. Mark 1, 34. Tells us, That Jesus, when he came upon a demon-possessed individual, would not allow the demons to speak. Zip it, he would say. Don't talk. Now why would he not want the demons to talk? Because early in Christ's ministry, Christ was not ready yet to reveal who he was, and he knew the demons had the worst-kept secret in the celestial realms. That even though we did not esteem Jesus as being God, even though we did not see him as something to grab a hold of, even though we did not see him as something from out of this world, the demons did. You see, for all of eternity past, before their rebellion, the demons worshipped and praised and adored the name of Jesus. They worshipped him. They gave him praise. But notice... When he interacts with these demons, he says, I don't want you to talk because you're going to reveal who I am and I'm not ready yet to be revealed. I'm not ready to declare myself in this way. Now moving on, Luke 4, 33 and 34, write that passage down. Jesus is interacting with a particular demon. And this particular demon says, I know who you are. You are Jesus, the Son of God. That's also seen in Luke 4, 41. You're him. You're the son of God. I know it. I'm not mistaken. I know who I'm talking to. You're the king of kings and you're the Lord of lords. You see, demons knew a lot more than the religious leaders of that day knew. They knew a lot about God. I'm going to be honest with you. They know more about God and more about Jesus Christ than in many ways we do. They have a greater knowledge of who God is than even we do. 
They were in glory before creation, and they saw God in all his majesty and splendor. But God says their faith is no good. It accomplishes nothing. Why? Write these three things down. Number one, when a demon says that Jesus is the Son of God, he has the right information, but the information doesn't change him. The information doesn't change him. You see, some of us have all the right information about God. We've sat in church and we've listened to preaching and we know all the right answers. Who do people say that I am? The demon says, we know who you are. You're Jesus, the Son of God. Did that do anything? Zilch. It didn't change them. It didn't bring forth transformation. And some of us are taking information and it's staying in our head and it's not impacting our heart. Number two... Demonic faith doesn't move you to love Jesus. Jesus, you're the Son of God. I know who you are. I know the right answer to the question. But it doesn't move me anything to say I love you. I'll follow you. I'm going to do what you say. This is the love test. Does information about Jesus move you to love him more? After 20 years of marriage to Amanda, the more information I have just calls me and compels me to love her more. I love her more deeply now than I did as a person on a honeymoon. Why? Because I know more about her, and the more I know, the more I love. Demons know God well, but they don't love him. Thirdly, the faith of demons is a faith of perpetual rebellion, not repentance. So they say, I know you, God. I know all about you. I know about my sin. I know that my rebellion leads me away from you. But does that change their direction? No. Does it cause them to seek forgiveness? No. To submit to his will and word? No. And some of us this morning find ourselves knowing a lot about God and a lot about the scriptures, but it doesn't change you. It doesn't impact your life. It doesn't call you to a place of submission Because you say it's just information. Listen, if it doesn't transform you, if it doesn't cause you to love Jesus more, and if it doesn't cause you to repent, it isn't biblical faith, it's demonic. You see, these three types of faith are useless, the text says, and of zero value. This type of faith will get us nowhere. So what kind of faith does? We've got to move quickly here. Dynamic faith. Dynamic faith. He uses one more illustration, two more illustrations. And this illustration is of dynamic faith. He gives two examples. He says, listen, dynamic faith can be achieved through the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's going to cause us to do some things. And he uses an example. I want you to notice a couple things here about dynamic faith. Write this down. First of all, he gives two examples, Abraham and Rahab. And what we learn of Abraham and Rahab is that they both exhibited faith that God was pleased with. Now I want you to notice, first of all, that within this dynamic faith, neither of these two people were perfect. You don't have to be perfect to have a dynamic faith. This faith, uh, these people were far from perfect. Rahab was a woman from a pagan nation in a city called Jericho. She was a part of a people who hated the God of the Israelites. Likewise, Abraham, with all his accolades of being a patriarch, of being God's man, missed God's best numerous times in his life. He made bad decisions, even after he had heard from God directly. And yet God would see something in both of their examples that would be proven as effective. 
So they're not perfect people. You don't have to be perfect. Stop trying to be perfect. You will never be perfect. Stop the try hard fail mentality. What you need to do is God wants you and all your sins and all your imperfections to rest and rely on him and him alone. To rely on the only perfect gift of Jesus to complete the work that you and I can't. Faith believes and acts in what Jesus has done for us, not what we can do for him. You don't have to be perfect. Number two, it's possessive. It's possessive. This is seen both in Abraham and Rahab. They took the words of God and applied it to their life and situation. Abraham, the text says, waited for a son. And he's given a son in his old age. And what does God require after he gives him a promised son after all those years? I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to give him back to me. That same God is now requiring that the son he gave to be given back. Now Abraham knew what God was asking, and yet he still did it. He did it not knowing the results, not knowing what the return value would be, but what he did is he said, I can trust God in all things. Even in the hard things, I can trust him. I'm going to rely on him. I'm going to allow him to address his plan and purposes in my life. I am going to do what he says. So it is with Rahab as well. She lives in Jericho. Jericho's beyond the Jordan River. The people of God have been promised that land. And Jericho's a group of people that are rebelling against the word and plan of God. And she has heard the things that God has done. She's heard of the accolades of God through his mighty hand, how he has ministered and cared and protected the people of Israel. So she acts. And she lays cover for the spies who have come in. And in that act, she says, I trust God. I'm going to rely on him. I'm going to allow him to show his grace and mercy. And so she acts. And so both Abraham and Rahab both knew the things of God and applied it to their lives. They applied their faith in God to their lives. Real faith for real life. And that knowledge of faith transformed them and caused them to do something different. Notice it's persistent. It's persistent. How far did Abraham go in following God? All the way to raising the knife over his son. He was ready to do what God required of him. How far did Rahab go in hiding the spies? She knew the punishment that would come as a traitor of the people of Jericho. She knew that it would mean death. But she did it. You see, with great harm standing before them, they chose to follow God instead of their own desires. Faith isn't something uh, that is simply esoteric. It is the very thing that when the going gets tough, faith battles. It perseveres. It continues on in obedience. And at times, it will allow us to accomplish and handle things we never thought were possible. Finally, it's put into practice. Both Abraham and Rahab could have said that they have faith, but it would have been useless unless they were willing to show it. We wouldn't have known for sure if they had faith or not. And that's why we talk so much about doing things here at Village. Because what good is it for our faith to simply just talk about it and no one to see our faith or religion at work? What good is it for us to talk about the abundant life of Jesus Christ that we have if we don't show people how we've been changed by it? You see, that's why James gives half of the verses in James have a command to them. 
It isn't so that we can do things to be saved or do things to have a right status with God. It is to do things so that we can show the world and other believers that I'm changed and I've been transformed by the saving work of Jesus Christ in my life. Because if we don't do that, how will they know if they don't see faith being lived out in their lives? So listen, the preaching that we do here isn't to condemn us as believers, but to encourage us to live each and every day through the faith that God gives and to rely and trust on him and to allow those good works to come as a result. Finally, the implementation. I got to fast forward this thing because we need to land the plane. The implementation. What do we do? Where do we go from here? As we look at a passage like this, we must respond And we recognize verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And we've got to ask ourselves some questions. First of all, we've got to recognize, we've got to recognize 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us that we must test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And when we come to a passage like this, we are beg the question, where am I at? What faith do I have? You can't ask your spouse to answer that question for you. You've got to ask, have I received by faith, by grace, the faith that only God can give? Have I made that my own? Or are you simply living out a dead, deficient, or even demonic faith? If so, something's got to change. You've heard the word of God. You've been extended the love and grace of Jesus Christ by the power of his work on the cross. And you've seen and experienced through others that power of God working through them. And so the question is, will you remain in your sin? Will you remain in your dead faith? Or will you live in light of that truth? What that means is we've got to internalize And what I mean by that is you've got to incorporate faith into your life. If you're living with any of these three types of faith, then today is the day you throw off that faith and you throw yourself to Jesus Christ. You say, Jesus, it's you alone that I can trust in. It is you alone who has the power to save me. It is you alone that will make me right with my Father in heaven. And I rest and I rely on you alone for all that I need. I trust you that your way of life is the only way of life that will allow me to fulfill my purpose and your plan for my life. It means recognizing my sin and submitting myself to his holiness and power. But be careful, people, not to compartmentalize. Not to compartmentalize. It's really easy for us to have faith on Sunday, but not Monday, right? It's easy to have faith and talk about faith in our small groups, but not in the workplace or in the school. And be careful that you don't say faith is something I have on certain days of the week in certain situations and scenarios, but faith must be a part of every aspect of my life. And so be careful not to start to to cause your faith to become defective because you're only using it in one place. Faith has to be going on. That light will not stay on if it gets unplugged. And so we continually and constantly need to make sure that we are plugging ourselves into that. And when sin and trouble comes, we say, God, you know me better than I do. Forgive me and make me more like your son. And God says he will forgive and he will minister and he will care. But for that to become a reality, we must prioritize. We must prioritize. Let me close with this. Our faith in God is something that we should view as a treasure. Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. 
But this faith is not of ourselves, but a gift from God. And if it's a gift from God, we gotta cherish it. We gotta use it. We gotta protect it. We gotta rejoice in it. We gotta persevere in it. We've gotta trust in it. And we gotta hope in it. Jesus gave us a faith so that we might know Him and be known by Him. So let's do all that we can so that we might grow in our faith and live according to His faith, so that through Him we might serve Him faithfully and worship Him joyfully. The only one who did all the work. And having faith means I rest in Him and Him alone. Always remembering this final truth, that what saves us is faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. What saves us is faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone because what will come as a result are good works.